Hi, and welcome to the Deep Dives Weekly Podcast. My name is Johannes van Leinen. Uh, I'm an instructor for Deep Dives and mostly uh, development, analytics, machine learning, etc. And with me, I have Mikko, with a similar kind of uh, background and the just-in-time type showing up. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. Um, our, our topic uh, for this week was security. Um, uh, first of all, apologies that we didn't have a podcast last week. We we met some scheduling problems, so so it just was not feasible. Um, and uh, you know, due to the uh, holiday season, midterms and stuff going on. But yeah, the the the, the security um, topic. Uh, this week comes from, from two reasons. One is selfish. I've just happened to teach um, quite a bunch of security-related courses, um, and I've taken some security-related uh, certification exams as well. So the topic is kind of hot <laughs> on my mind. Um, but there's also a better reason, um, as we've been talking about DevOps uh, a bit and the different parts of DevOps. And uh, we could also take a look at security from, from that point of view, from the software, de software development lifecycle. Um, but that, that's kind of the idea. And um, but we're not going to be talking about computer security, but rather cloud security. And, and why is that? Well, um, it is because cloud computing security is inherently different from traditional computing security. Um, and this is maybe better seen, um, maybe we're gonna have a, a session sometimes on migrations and on uh, finances, cloud finances or costs. So, so then we can maybe uh, go, go even deeper into that. But, but in a principle, in the traditional world where we have servers running, I don't know, even in our office, right, we might have printer servers or something like that running in our office uh, or in an on-prem data center. Um, the way that we do security is via perimeter security, right? So, um, and uh, uh, in the cloud, we don't do that. How come? Miko, do you know what I mean by perimeter security? Perimeter security? Yeah. In, like not in this physically. in this context, yeah. So you're saying that uh, the the printer is uh, is being uh, handled differently than than our cloud operations. Yes. Right? Yes. So just uh, how is the printer security then handled? Let's start with that. Like an, any office server security, even a file server. How is our office network security handled? Why well, poorly, perimeter? just to start with, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> well, our office, yes, but in general, <laughs> it is via perimeter security, right? So we have kind of our office, which is inside the perimeter. Yeah, everything happens inside the office and there's no access from the outside. Yeah, or so if like, there is at access, least there shouldn't be. Yeah, like, if there is be, access, like a single access point, and then we have like a you know firewall or, or whatever security appliance there, 
that is controlling that security, right? That's what we mean, right? And we, we, we know that that works because we know that physically, <laughs> the only way to connect the network is via the <clears> one point, right? <laughs> like there are no other ways. Do you, do you mean network as in like internet? Uh, to the office network. The only way to get um, from or, or to the office network is via that one point physically. We can follow the cables, right? And they all lead to that one place. And there's no other way to go around. So, so, so that's why we can uh, implement our security there. Almost, almost like that. I remember it just, I, I don't want to uh, uh, cancel what you just said, but, or ignore what you said, but I remember there was a problem long time ago that uh, you, you were not in one particular bank that you were not uh, allowed to take your laptop into the premises and plug it in because there were some uh, some viruses or Trojans or something were running wild and they were getting access by you bringing physically yeah. something into the network without, well, to the intranet world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, of course, so nowadays that, with like also with Wi Fi, it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. VPN. And, yeah. Uh, but okay, let's okay, don't so get distracted by my words here. Yeah, that's how we do it traditionally. But that can't work in the cloud, right? Like, literally, we don't know where our virtual machines are running. On, on so, so actually, yeah, actually, you cannot take your device to the cloud because you have no idea where that physically that cloud is. Yeah. So, so the way network security works in the cloud is uh, via isolation, right? So, so we're creating uh, what is most often they call the virtual private cloud within the cloud provider's environment. Um, and we're creating a virtual network inside that. And uh, this is something that is fairly well known even with data centers, right? So that if you like uh, lease some space from a data center and you have your equipment in different racks, that doesn't mean that your equipment can talk to all of the other clouds, right? So then what we're creating is a, a VNet uh, on that. And, and there are standards for doing that, TCP uh, IP extensions. Um, but in the cloud, that doesn't really work because you know, there's a limited amount of IDs to be used with that technology. Um, and then we're still kind of routing on the physical network. It's just that the uh, the, the network streams are isolated from each other. So, so you're using same cables, physical cable, same physical cables as someone else. Exactly. And that might be problematic for, for, for some people. So now, from, from legislation point of view, for example. Yeah. Maybe. Or, or just you know, for, for, for being a little bit paranoid. It's always good to be paranoid, Yeah, really. like paranoid or healthy paranoid. Yeah, that's a fine line, yeah. <laughs> but how does, this, how, how does this networking then work in the cloud? That's, that's the question you're here to answer. But, but as before we dive deeper in there, uh, if this is a really good way of handling things, what you're going to reveal us soon, why we do are not doing it in in our office network as well? Yeah, we are. Uh, we can talk about that. But yeah. Okay. So it's not um, that different then. 
Uh, no, so 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 what? I mean, we, the uh, technical solution is different. Yeah. So, so because of the, the a couple of things um, in the network. So first of all, the cloud internal network needs to be needs to be highly available, right? So so we need to have multiple connections to each um, typical machine. We need to have multiple routers, like. To simplify things a little bit, think that there's a router on the top of every rack that handles the connectivity for, for, for mm -hmm. that. So there need to be two of those. Um, then the racks need to be connected to each other with, with high-speed bandwidth. Um, and then whatever availability zones we might or other things we might have uh, in the cloud provider, those also need to be um, connected to each other. And, and the uh, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm here to ask these new big questions and, and all that. Network is, is one of the, the areas where I do not shine, one of the few areas. Uh, <laughs> and so when, when you're connecting the racks together, there's also probably a, a way of doing that efficiently because you're not going to connect if you have 100 racks. They are not connected to each other, or like well, one rack to 100. So networks. Um, when we're using TCP/IP, we're, we're doing hierarchical networking. So there's a router of all routers at the top, or something like that. Yeah, that's like the internet, I guess, or something, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So, but it's like uh, uh, there are subnets of network that then are physically co-located, um, and then kind of the, the top of the rack router knows which subnets belong to that rack. Um, and then if it finds uh, an IP address that needs to go somewhere else, it just throws it onwards to the uh, next router uh, in the chain. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this works perfectly in a highly distributed environment like the internet, or, or maybe even in a local area, like in a small office. However, there are a couple of problems here. So, so first of all, we're, we're having highly available connectivity. So we're having two connections between each piece of, of hardware at the minimum. However, with TCP IP, when we send a, uh, basically, a, let's say a stream of data, we can only use one of those routes. We can't use both simultaneously. That's a mm -hmm. limitation of the, the protocol. Uh, another thing is that actually these top of the rack uh, routers uh, are more highly available and more efficient if they would be mesh networks. If they would be like at least to some level totally interconnected, so that we have multiple routes that a packet can take, kind of depending on what the traffic situation is, right? So, so again, TCP/IP doesn't uh, really allow for that, but at least not not very easily. So, what has happened is that uh, pretty much all of the, the cloud providers have created their own custom network stack. So, and, so and to be specific, it means that. Internally, it's something else than TCP/IP. Yeah, and and that make that gives us a lot of the surface, and that, that's really confusing when you hear it for the first time. That actually, when when you're sending TCP/IP packets or or your software or your operating system or whatever is sending package packets, then something else actually happens there. Yeah, it's like. Like literally everything is virtual, even the network. Yeah, or just, it's, at least it's it. abstracted. 
away the, the technical implementation. Yeah, the only reason why we're sending TCP IP packet from our virtual machine in the cloud is because that, that's what our operating system software is, yeah. is used to do. It's not efficient. <laughs> it's, it's easier to migrate. <laughs> it, it was efficient in certain kinds of environments or probably if it was invented or reinvented or re-implemented, not re-implemented, but oh, yeah, redone, it would be done differently nowadays, probably. Yeah, exactly. So, so we need to have this, we are in this situation where we need to have this custom uh, network stack that will run uh, on the physical hardware that then, because custom, <clears throat> we can create multiple um, isolated virtual networks onto it, and we can do stuff like like automatically en uh, encrypt data on it, right? So then it doesn't really matter that uh, data is running the same physical wire that neighbors because besides being logically isolated, it is now is also encrypted. <coughs> so how do we know it's actually encrypted? We, 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 we don't see it. So it's it's we, we their word the against ours. Reports. Or sorry, come again. We read through the audit reports. Yep. Right. And that's so, that's one of the things that you have to trust your cloud cloud uh, provider. Yeah, they they use audits. So so that you have these third party companies that could then come to the actual physical environment and then write how it has been implemented and then put a stamp on that. And and then that basically means that a third party has seen it and, and that it works uh, in the way that it has been described. So you actually yeah, don't so, have to just trust their word. You you can there are third party audits that and parties yeah, that so do that. Now the problem kind of becomes that we have this marvelous network um, that gives us all kinds of features that would be really nice to use. Uh, but then our software and our operating system still wants to talk TCP/IP or, or Ethernet actually, which is even worse, <laughs> like the hardware <laughs> protocols. So so what do we do? Well, we need to have some kind of a virtualization environment, some kind of a layer that you know pretends to the operating system that it is a TCP/IP network, and and then does whatever is needed to be done to to make it work on the uh, actual network. So we're, we're we're kind of doing an overlay TCP/IP network on top of that that other custom network stack. Uh, and there are lots of things that, that really don't make any sense in like traditional Ethernet, uh, like for example, an ARP call, right? So, so when you uh, kind of, when your computer first wants to talk to another computer, um, another IP address, maybe in the same subnet, uh, what it does, it sends an ARP request out. It asks for the, the MAC address, the hardware address for this specific TCP IP. Uh, address and, and and that is a broadcast over the whole subnet, right? And then if that IP address is on the same subnet, it will return back. Like, Hello, it's me. My MAC address is this, 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 and this. And then they can talk to each other uh, on the hardware layer using those MAC addresses. Now this doesn't make any sense in the cloud, cause another virtual machine that is on the same subnet than your first virtual machine might actually be located in a physically different data center, even though they have adjacent IP addresses. Mm -hmm. so the whole idea of sending kind of a local broadcast, please tell me if you're here, doesn't make any sense in this context. So, so what do we do? Well, 
you don't really need the hardware address anymore. Kind of our operating system needs it, but we don't need it for the actual communication an hour later. So then we just, you know, we just make up these MAC addresses consistently, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what our operating system is, is uh, um, expecting. So, so we're doing all kinds of tips and tricks to make sure that the actual networking is working correctly. Uh, but then we're taking kind of uh, uh, shortcuts whenever possible. Um, and, and now, this is where it gets interesting. So think of, even if it's not true, think of the actual physical network of being this kind of a mesh network where kind of all racks or, or all subsections of the net, local network are interconnected with each other. Now, where do we put the firewall? Good question. Right? Where can we put it? Yeah. There is no single point of entry, right? There is one single point of entry, but it is per virtual machine. And that's and the, the virtualization layer, right? So the, the, the firewall would also be a virtual firewall. Yeah, so right? kind of one point of view, um, how to do network security in the cloud is you do these per instance, per, per virtual machine firewalls that kind of call different things in different, like uh, in AWS security groups. Uh, and then they get evaluated. Again, we're in this situation. <laughs> anyway, so I was saying, you hear me okay? Yeah. So I was saying, so the one option is to do it there where we are moving from the TCP IP world into this magic world, right? All of the traffic has to be through there, so we can do something there. And this would be kind of similar to, to having an operating system firewall in your traditional environments. You often do that. But then this kind of network-wide firewall, the, kind of the physical firewall that we put next to the router that goes to the internet, that doesn't really exist. But as it happens, we don't really need that. Because what we can say is, because this is not TCP IP anymore, what we can say is, is we can just define what kind of traffic we want to have and what not. And then we let the network take care of that security, right? So, so this is what we would implement using stuff like maybe NACLs or, or um, firewalls in, in, in Google VPC, firewall rules. They're actually evaluated on the network level, right? So, so once the traffic goes to some point where it needs to decide where to go next, uh, it gets evaluated whether should be allowed so, not, and then it's taken care of. So you have basically kind of a distributed firewall. Exactly. And that's great because that means that there are no bottlenecks. There is no latency added uh, by at least simple sets of uh, firewall rules. And, uh, or a single point of failure from like a physical hard, uh, firewall that breaks, then that's a huge exactly. problem. problem. 
And then we have a third thing with, with regards to network security. Um, that has to do with the principle of uh, minimizing the attack area, basically. So what are we doing in, in cloud? If we're running our application um, and we have different amounts of requirements depending on the time of day. So, so we scale up and down. Scale, yeah, uh, scaling up. Um, so how can we ensure that the end customer kind of gets the correct EC2 uh, or to, to the correct virtual machine, uh, independent of how many copies there are available? How to get to a specific virtual machine? Uh, our, you know, we have maybe between two and ten machines. Mm -hmm. So how does the does the customer need to try out different IP addresses to find the machine that is ready? We have some sort of load balancer there in, in front or? Right. And um, are we running that load balancer ourselves? Uh, hopefully not. <laughs> it's right. uh, from my point of view, again, uh, I prefer simple solutions. And if there's a service provided by someone else, then by all means use that. Exactly. So now again, the different cloud providers have different implementations of load balancers. Uh, some of them are host-based, so they're basically a virtual machine that is running and then doing the load balancing. Some of them are actually the network itself, similarly to, to the security part. So we just tell the network. If somebody wants to connect to that, then divide it over the different uh, targets in the target group. But the main thing here is that we are not the first line of defensing. Right? We are not the party that terminates the TCP IP request that comes from the internet. It's somebody else. It's the cloud provider. And then that way, we automatically get rid of any kind of you know, lower than layer seven vectors because they're not attacking our system. Right? If you have like a, an application load balancer, a layer seven load balancer, terminate the HTTPS section on its own, and then make a separate request to your backend, then there is no you know, weird traffic coming to our instances. We could keep all of our ports open, basically, in our instances, because we know that you know, no weird traffic. But you shouldn't. Of, of course, course. We yeah, yeah. we're using multiple layers of security. So um, when moving, yeah? So, so, you're, so basically, you're pushing the uh, the the point where where you well, most of the attacks gets get blocked further and further away from you. So it happens yeah. earlier and earlier, and it actually happens even earlier than that. It can happen somewhere. Let's say some you're you're running a service in in uh, in Germany. You're, you're like the the data center is somewhere in in Germany. That much you know. It's called a data center in German. Data center. So mm -hmm. in, in there, somewhere there, and you, you have that network security, you have load balancers, you have all that in, in Germany. But if yeah. you're the person or the system that is attacking you or making weird requests is coming from United States, it could be blocked in United States. Which exactly. you wouldn't you you wouldn't have that on the on the kind of a traditional on-prem system. You would have to take care of that as well. 
But yeah, there are a lot of things that can happen before the data or the request even enters the data center. Yeah, so, so what is kind of funny uh, here is, again, this differs a bit between the different cloud providers. But in Google, any public IP address that you get is actually an any cost IP address. So it will be automatically routed onto the Google network at the closest point as possible. From, the, from the client's point of view. And because it's then on the Google network, Google will, of course, uh, analyze the traffic and then block it. It's in their interest to, to, to block, for example, DDoS attacks as early as possible. Exactly. Not in Germany, but in the United States, if the attack is coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why take bother of taking that traffic on your network? Yeah. It's, it's just, just when you used up for, for someone it, else. It, it costs money to, to move data. So. So, so, so network security is kind of one thing. Um, and I don't want to go too deep into that. We've mm -hmm. gone deep, deep enough. Uh, and, and kind of the takeaway is that actually network security, um, when moving from on-prem into the cloud, it becomes more simple to handle uh, and it becomes more secure. They're, they're, we are using ready-made products that are handled by you know, true security professionals that are working for the uh, cloud uh, providers instead of you know Mike who comes by two two times a week to fill around with with our no no worries Mike you're okay runs, runs updates and uh, goes home yeah right so so um, there's a big difference here um, so it's, it's less admin cycles for us so we can concentrate on doing whatever we're doing best um, and then there's more security right um, and, and before you continue I just I just have to say that even even it's easier, it's more robust, but you still can make mistakes if you misconfigure your network. Of course. Of course. So there's you, you cannot get away from that. There's always a possibility that you or your colleague, probably your colleague, makes a mistake and uh, and <laughs> opens the network, uh, let's say port 22, and which probably shouldn't be open nowadays anyway. Yeah. Um, that actually brings us then to so so network security in general is um, what is called a, a prescriptive control. So, so we are a little bit like when we are giving permissions to people, we are in advance saying what is allowed and what is not allowed. And of course, we want to do as much security using prescriptive security as possible, but um, we can't do all of it. Right? The most secure thing for a, you know, for our application that we are running, the most secure thing that we can do is shut it down. Okay? That way, nobody can get access to it. There's no security risk. A bit radical, though. Yeah, but it's not what we're looking yeah, for, yeah, yeah. right? It's, if it's if you don't want anyone to access your data database, then shut down your database. Yeah. But that's not often possible, right? So we need to make compromises. So, so with addition to, to prescriptive controls, we should also always apply detective controls. And detective controls, as their name maybe suggests, means that if a security incident happens, then that we get to know about it, um, and maybe we know how to handle that. There, there are different kinds of uh, systems available for that. And in your example, where somebody would, by accident, uh, open up the network, we have, we have multiple lines of defense against that, right? So, so let's presume that they're using an infrastructure as code 
um, system, right? As they should. Mm -hmm. um, so, so then in that case, uh, we, we probably have a, a static code set in the CI/CD pipeline that will scan for, for non-allowed things in the network configuration. So we could we could get it there already before it goes into production. Uh, we could test the network. So we could create a separate network with that configuration and then run some local tests in that before making that change into production. And then once it is actually in production, we can then have different kinds of detective controls running in there that are then allowing us, letting us know about these kinds of things. Like opening up port 22, uh, like, like I think all of the uh, cloud providers have a free security solution that will alert you that you have port 22 open in your-, your Or even automatically door. block it if it gets opened. Well, maybe that's, you can automate it. Yes, yeah. definitely. Certain so, things uh, yeah. probably are good too. If, if you can, and you know some things like they would, things like that would, like this would happen, then why not automate that? The yeah, that's kind of the, the DevOps view, right? We want to automate everything in DevOps, and then sometimes we call this part of security DevSecOps. Um, and I think it's always okay. We can't, you know, use huge amounts of time to to create automation for every possible scenario. Of course not. Yeah. <clears throat> but if we find a security incident and then we mitigate it, we should then <laughs> create an automation for it so that the next time the same... Or at least, or at least document happens. what you did so that next time you do it again, it's... But then you can just as well automate it. Right. Yeah. Same thing with writing a lambda function or something that does that. So, so just just do it. Just just have an automation in place. And then next time it will work automatically. So you can actually, always... a colleague of mine said uh, it, it's okay to do do it manually twice, but the third time should be uh, you should do it. After the yeah. second time, you should automate it, and then the third time it comes, then it's automated. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit more strict. I think one time is enough. Yeah, but yeah, but but to be realistic, there are so many things that are really hard to automate. <clears throat> Some things are just uh, too many uh, uh, variables there. That the, the situations are similar but not the same, and it makes no sense to automate all of them. Yeah. So that one of those things that are difficult to automate um, is uh, application security. So with application security, um, what we mean is the basically the runtime environment um, that your application is running in. And it consists of multiple layers, right? So there's the operating system itself that is uh, running there, any kind of user accounts that are on that operating system. Then we have the application stack, right? So, so maybe some uh, uh, SDK, you know, Java SDK, maybe a application server, you know, Tomcat is running there. Those might have vulnerabilities uh, in them. Uh, then it's the, the libraries that your application is using. Uh, famously, the, the, the log, what is it? Open source Java. libraries. You know, the logging library for Java was Log4j. Yeah, that was a big thing yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and then finally, it's your own code, right? But if you take a look at that kind of a, Modern uh, web application, specifically if it's a microservice, 
then, then the amount of lines of code that are written by you out of the whole stack is minimal. It's so very small. It's, it's like ridiculously small. Yeah. So we can actually get pretty good coverage by just concentrating on the code that is actually not being written by you. Right? So we can automate that. Uh, we can do that using different kinds of um, maybe CVE scanners um, that look for, for uh, commonly known vulnerabilities uh, and then compare the version number of whatever thing you have uh, in your system with the, 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 the well-known database of, of vulnerabilities. Um, and then we can do this in multiple phases of our uh, life cycle, right? So we can, we can do that already during build time. Uh, just check all of the versions of the different libraries that you use against that database, make sure that there are you know, vulnerabilities that are known. Um, and, and then the good part is that those will also tell you how to mitigate the, the vulnerability. So what to do to make it go away. Um, and then build the software. Um, but we need to remember to keep scanning afterwards because, you know, a version of a library might not have had any known vulnerabilities when you built the software, but maybe next week a new vulnerability came out against that specific version. So, so then we need to get alerted. And there's Very actually the, the, the challenge with dependencies is that even though you, you think you're using version from, let's say, version 1.1, but then through some other means, uh, you are actually, you end up using a different version. That that can be <laughs> that, that can be really tricky to to trace if, for example, if you don't have access to the production environment, and usually yeah. you shouldn't have. If you're like a regular yeah. developer, you shouldn't be you know, like uh, handling the, the the production environment, and that can be a problem as well. But but so you you really need to be scanning the awesome. the final product and the final version when it's running or when it's in the environment that is. Yeah. Yeah, put in place most of the production. Yeah, put in place things like, uh, of course, always pin your dependencies to a specific version. Mm -hmm. um, then you know what has been used. Then you know at the build time, but when when you're actually using the software, it could be that the operating system is pushing something else. And yeah, that can be really complex. Hmm? No, no automatic updates. Everything needs to be done manually. Yes, I, <laughs> but it gets so complicated in the production. There could be something else happening in production that just overrides some dependencies without you even realizing that. So, but let's not go in there. I just know for a fact that it gets yeah. super complicated. Yeah, it's like not very um, often, but sometimes it gets. But yeah, yeah so definitely, you should pin the versions that you're using because yeah, somebody then, could. Uh, the open source open source library somebody could take over that and write on purpose some some uh, sneaky sneaky things there next time you update you get the new newest version and then voila there's a backdoor to your to your system yeah. that has have your own have your own repo with the approved versions of the dependencies don't depend on a third party repo so you can have like a process in place where somebody goes through updating versions and then mirrors them in your own repo that's also good for for kind of build time errors right so so it may be the third party repo is down when you want to run, run a build and that <laughs> you can't do it that's also not good yeah 
I'm just running because uh, 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 okay, Johannes dropped again, but I'm I'm uh, laughing because it's so fun to, to try to build a production version of your or, or a version of your application, and then then it's uh, uh, the, the libraries are not available. This has happened before to me as well. Uh, it's really tricky today. You don't want to talk with me or something else? Yeah, probably I don't. It's it's me that doesn't want to talk to you. Okay. Anyway, so so that's sometimes called the supply chain um, security. So by supply chain, it means basically what we are depending on, what we are, what our suppliers. Are. The the dependency maintenance or maintaining the the correct versions and your own repos and that that actually that's overhead. And not, not not all companies or organizations can afford that. Yeah, it, it gains the security posture. If you um, have a small operation, then probably you don't you don't want to implement everything by yourself. Yeah, and then that kind of brings us to the rest of the the kind of software development lifecycle. So how does security then be involved? We already talked about the CI/CD pipeline a bit. Um, of course, you know, test coverages um, are, are um, important here. Um, but I think the most important thing to take away from, from the, the whole idea of DevSecOps is a, it's a kind of a um, attitude change. So, so in the security part of the IT industry, um, very often um, the, the kind of attitude is to say no. Right, to deny. It's like, um, can I install this cool piece of software onto my laptop? No, you can't. We haven't approved it. So you can't. Um, and, and what does that actually mean from an organizational point of view? Well, it means that what are we doing? How are we installing that software onto my personal And then actually working with my personal laptop, which is then totally out of uh, reach for the security part. Um, similarly, if you would want to use a specific library, you know, as part of your application or or, or something else. Um, so, so kind of the security people or department or, or function, uh, instead of being totally um, concentrated on the absolute security of the organization, should see themselves as an enabler, right? So, so tell, come to us and we will tell you how you can do what you want to do in a secure way because we have the know-how. So if we can make that change, so, so that security people, instead of saying no, say, well, this is the way you can do it. <laughs> like maybe not the way you thought, but there's another way that is that okay for you. Like there's this other software which is, um, has better support that you can then use um, instead of that. Sometimes it's difficult if, if you come from a small small operation where basically you can do almost anything with your, with your uh, let's say, laptop. Uh, if, you don't, if you go to, to work for, for example, a bank and they, then suddenly they have tens of thousands of people whose laptop they need to control. And... Mm. So I understand that it's very difficult just to allow everything. Well, it, it would be stupid because then yeah, of course, you're looking for trouble. Yeah. And so that that uh, rigid way of looking at things kind of works, but it could be much better. 
as you said, they should be enablers and not just denying every, every request that you have. Right. Because very often, um, if, we're, if they're denying, then they're, they're breaking on velocity, which is one of the key points that we want to, to or the key metrics that we want to, to maximize. Are they probably um, not looking at the same metrics themselves? Yeah, they're not. That's the problem. And, and, and then another thing that happens is that then they get circumvented. So people will do it anyway, um, but then we're losing visibility over what's going on. So that's yep. good either. So, so then if possible, there should be a way to, you know, via discussion, get to the uh, to correct endpoint. Um, so, so that's also very important. And then there are also there are always ways to do things um, like containerization, for example. This is just because I've just taken the, uh, the CKS exam. Um, like like doing uh, creating something like a, a, a GVisor environment where you can explicitly set set up which kernel calls are available to a container and which kernel calls are not. You can literally say that any kernel call that will write to a file is not available there. It doesn't matter how the volume mounts have been uh, configured, uh, how what the software tries to do, it just, you know, it will not be able to write to a file uh, from that environment, uh, which is something that we, we, it's a little bit heavy. So we wouldn't want to do that maybe for everything that we're running. But if we are in, in the need of, you know, using something that is a little bit we're unsure about, then just constraining it into a kind of a smaller isolated place might be the good way um, to, to make things work in at least some way. So, so that's kind of also that there's also there, there seems to be always some way uh, getting there. And then what what security people need to do is in, instead of just saying no, they need to go and look at the modern tools and then figure that way out. And then help the team mm -hmm. um, to get where they want to get. That's kind of uh, at least my my generic takeaway. Um, a lot of things um, regarding security uh, originally had to do about trust. I, I remember um, even when I started as an AWS instructor six, six years ago now, which is a long time. Um, I remember customers uh, not being interested in moving into the cloud because they would doubt the security posture. That we can't do that. We, we think that we are secure if we have the keys to the data center. And then if we are in somebody else's data center, then we are not secure. And a lot of this has had to do with, with basic misconceptions about how things really work. And that's why it's always been very important to uh, you know, lecture these people, to tell them that in reality, this thing run, running in the cloud is going to be more secure than your current environment. Most likely, you get more security per dollar that you're spending on. I can, I can so feel the, the, the not invented here uh, mm. attitude here that it, no, we cannot trust the cloud because we didn't do it ourselves and we know how to do things. And the fact is probably that that, that you're not doing it as well as, as it's done in the cloud. There, there's that, or, or then there's like this um, dependency on uh, 
let's just say, for example, checkpoint software. So checkpoint software is a firewall device manufacturer. So they have invested into checkpoint. Um, they've bought their hardware for their on-prem, and they all have the know-how. They have mm -hmm. taken courses and whatever. And now they're in the cloud. And then they're like, where do I put my checkpoint firewall? Like, you don't do that. Like, well, I can't go there. Use my checkpoint file, right? So, so it's like there are these obstacles that are really not obstacles that are just um, are kind of in people's minds because they don't understand that things work in a different way. And that's kind of one, one of the reasons why uh, I wanted this topic to be discussed today. That, that maybe we get a little bit more aware, awareness about um, things not really being the same. So comparing apples and oranges, really. Um, so finally, um, I wanted to share a couple of links. I'll put these in the uh, description of the video. So if you're interested in this um, idea, there is a, an IBM website for uh, cloud security. This is a bit of an oddball, as we normally don't talk about the IBM cloud. At all. <laughs> it's a, a fairly minor player in the game, but they have some very good documentation. And, and their documentation is often not specifically IBM-minded. So, so there was a, a fairly good overview over you know, what cloud security specifically is on this IBM website, including stuff like uh, the cost of a data breach and kind of how to motivate yourself for actually paying for security services. Um, then I took the basic security web pages of each of the big cloud providers, starting off with uh, AWS. So, so they have a, a fairly nice overview over the different security features that the AWS infrastructure gives to you, and then the different kinds of uh, mitigation um, uh, processes that are available. So that's, that's fairly nice that there's like so much <laughs> this, this this crazy this is we're, we're teaching a three-day um security engineering on aws course where we we don't even go over all of this um we have a similar web page for um, microsoft azure um fairly good i think uh, but very opinionated to the microsoft offering uh, itself so that's why i wanted to put the ibm one there in the in the very beginning, um, with Microsoft, remember that uh, Azure. Remember that um, all of the Microsoft Learn um, content is freely available on the Microsoft website. So if you're interested, you can go see all of the possible courses uh, that have to do with with security uh, over there. Um, and then finally, I have uh, Google's security. Um, Google is the smallest of the three big hyperscalers. Um, so, so they often do things in a bit different way. Um, and they, they were very early on with the security mindedness. So kind of, in my personal opinion, Google and AWS are, are the two kind of most secure environments where they actually designed all of the products with a security first, uh, mindset, but their implementation is very different. So, so in AWS, because it's a little bit older, 
quite a lot of the functionalities are virtual machine based, whereas with uh, Google, more of it is actually running on the network um, itself. And this is partially due to the fact that the Google network is originally made by Google for Google, for Google running Google search ads, Gmail, YouTube, all of that stuff. So, so they had to think about security already then. And that's kind of seen um, in, in some of the uh, uh, features uh, here as well. But yeah, and then of course, if you have any any uh, questions regarding um, cloud security, please don't hesitate to uh, contact us. Use the, the chat on, on whatever platform you're, you're looking at, at this stuff, uh, or get over to our website Eu. Uh, hopefully, it's published properly by the time that you're listening to this uh, and send us a, a quick note. Note that we might be using your question uh, in one of the future episodes. Content. So, that's kind of what I was thinking of with regards to security. Mikko, did you have something to add? Did you, did you tell any jokes while I was disconnected? <laughs> jokes. No, 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 I never do that. Mm, I was wondering about the, just one more thing about the security. When it, we were talking, just briefly mentioned about the DevOps and uh, the automated tools that that uh, helps you figure out if you, for example, are using correct versions or incorrect versions of your dependencies. But from the your software point of view, like the, the software that you write, it's really important to use those static or or more dynamic more dynamic uh, code analysis tools because yeah. not only they find the problems that you have but they will always uh, not always they will also encourage you to write better code which makes in the long run you will write you will not make the same mistakes too many times because you realize that okay this this problem the the, the static or dynamic checker always finds about this. So I will eventually try start to write it in a different way, in a uh, yeah. correct way. Good example here. Actually is helped me a lot in the past when, when writing Java code and when we started using, let's uh, mm -hmm. say, Sonar Cube or something like that, then you, you, you end up writing much better code even if the, the, the static code analysis tool is not running, you're writing better code. And from the security point of view, that's, that's the same thing. If you're making same security-related mistakes again and again, and nobody points it out, then you're not going to change your habits. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to find the screenshot from CodeGuru, which is uh, an Amazon offering for this. It currently supports Python and Java. Um, and it is uh, trained on, on Amazon's own software kind of <laughs> version repository, <laughs> code repository. Um, and, and, and it does these findings. It also does profiling, which is uh, nice. Um, and you can, of course, attach this into your CICD pipeline. So it would be uh, Maybe even the peer reviewer would be kind of automatic. And it has pretty good um, um, things that it does. Let me just kind of try to zoom in a bit so that you can see. 
So it, it found some, some code um, where we're, we're adding um, a, a set of skills. Uh, this is Alexa stuff. So set of skills to the output. Um, and and this, if this variable enable skills here is uh, writable by the end user. So if it's some, some kind of, there's some kind of a post that sets something into this variable, and then this goes back to the, the uh, end user, then we need to HTML escape, make sure that there is no JavaScript injection happening uh, in this particular thing. So, so this is, is the, something that, that, at least for me, is, is very easy to overlook. That uh, if there is maybe some, maybe the enabled skills comes from a database, but maybe it was a free text field that somebody else was able to write uh, into that database. And then if a different user reads it and it includes some JavaScript code, then work. Uh, right. So, so of course, there, there are other places to find this in. You could do this uh, using uh, access cross cross site scripting uh, detection in the API gateway or somewhere like that. Um, but it's always best to do this with static code analysis uh, anyway. And I think this will become more and more. So, as we have the large language models now, um, if we start to get specialized models for for code, then then this kind of stuff might become better and better um, over time. So this is really yeah. painful, painful to fix if you have, uh, you have hundreds of thousands of lines of code. And as an afterthought, you, 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 you inherit some legacy code. And it's a really big, big job to fix. But once it's fixed, yeah. then every single notification that comes from a tool like this will really stand out. And then it's really easy to maintain that high quality because you just have to yeah. fix one thing at a time instead of thousands of things at, a, at the same time. But I, I have found these tools really, really, really helpful. And it increases the, the quality of the code and the security of the quality as well. Because not, not only quality, but the security as well. Yep. You're trying to go away again. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Should we crazy. call it a day? I think we have to, right? Something to do with the network here. We we bought a nice uh, Cisco Wi-Fi router. A pretty old one, but I like a proper. Uh, and now we're using it. Network Wi-Fi. security issues there. Network security. It's, there's something going on on the network. It's funny. I'm going to take a look at that next. Good luck. Anyway, hey, thanks a lot, Miko, for for being here my with pleasure. me and for for enduring my connectivity issues. I'm really sorry about that. Um, and thanks a lot to anybody who's been viewing us. Um, send us some ideas on topics that you want to get handled. And then, uh, otherwise, we're going to be back next Saturday at noon UTC. One o'clock CET, two o'clock Eastern European time. The sun is shining. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, you need to get some window blinds. I have the, the, the picture quality a bit. The, the, yeah, the light is not uniform. I don't like it. 
maybe we should have this at a different time because this is noon, so it just kind of goes over right here. <laughs> maybe now one hour later. To use a, a turtle light, and that's not so good. But yeah, cool. Thanks for 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 everybody for for listening, and see you next time. All right. Similarly, for you, Mikko, you are now ready to return to your weekend activities. Yes. Back to kids. Yeah. Till next week. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.